Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we're talking with uh, Astra Taylor, activist, writer, um, and an author of several books, the most recent of which is Age of Insecurity. Oh, there's a subtitle, isn't there? I forgot it. Do you? Yep, definitely. You it's coming together as things fall apart. If you want Boom. to say that. Nice. <laughs> coming together <laughs> as things fall apart. Nice little, uh, you know, as a circular sort of structure there. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, we talk with, with, with Astra about, you know, economic insecurity, what the, how that is related to the, you know, economic structures around the world, why Canada sucks and is bad, uh, <laughs> even though it's better than the United States. Um, and yeah, you know, how, how we can, you know, create a world in which people are not so afraid of, you know, falling into a pit of destitution at any moment, the turn of bad luck. Um, we, we, we learn why expropriating the billionaires is actually good for the billionaires and, uh, many other such things that reconsider the meaning of security and insecurity. And in usual fashion, Astor has written a book that is, uh, personal, political. It gets into history, etymology, philosophy, um, and is, is accessible to basically everyone because she's a great writer. And the conversation, um, you know, corresponds as you might, expect um to, to that clear-eyed and um you know well well-wrought kind of um uh thinking on these important issues you know yes and um yeah so without any further previews let's let's get to our conversation with astra taylor right now all right uh astra taylor welcome to the show um, thanks for coming back, returning guest, friend of the pod. Um, I don't know, third time, long time, but, but, but so we've had you here to talk about your book, uh, age of insecurity. And I thought we could sort of kick the conversation off by talking about what you mean by insecurity, you know, because I think that that's a phrase that could be interpreted in, 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 a, uh, like at least a few ways. You know, I think the most obvious would be thinking about personal insecurity, you know, like I've, I, I, I don't feel confident in myself. You know, I, I struggle to talk with people, you know, interpersonally, but then there's a sort of broader sense of, 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 of how you live in the world and, and how you perceive the, the possibilities that what could happen to you, um, you know, if, if you have a turn of bad luck, that sort of thing. So can you tell us, you know, the, what, what you're talking about there? Yeah. Well, first off, just, you know, thanks for having me on again. It's always great to be in dialogue with both of you. Super fun. Um, yeah. Insecurity is a word that is multidimensional. It's part of what attracted me to it as a descriptor of our times and also our emotional landscape. So it is a, a word that spans the personal and the political, because exactly as you just said, you know, we talk about feeling insecure in terms of our self-esteem or kind of emotional state at a given moment. But then it's also a word used by scholars and researchers to describe socio socioeconomic conditions, real objective material conditions. You know, there's studies on housing insecurity, job insecurity, ecological insecurity, um, and the like. You know, it, so it's a 
a word again that spans the emotional and the the material um you know uh the emotional and the economic uh you know we also talk about financial insecurity and for me that's that's part of what what drew me to it um the other thing is thinking about insecurity as a way of describing the kind of ambience of our age as a complement to our emphasis as leftists on inequality. Um, and I think that those, these two terms are actually really useful. And as, you know, progressives, we tend to talk about inequality a lot more. Uh, and inequality is something that's just getting worse. So inequality describes the massive gulf between the haves and the have nots, right? Uh, it's a, it's a term that was really put on the agenda by Occupy Wall Street in 2011, but it's really, you know, when you think about inequality, you can almost picture a graph, uh, and, you know, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poor. Insecurity in my mind is how the points on that graph feel. And especially how they feel, not just in the here and now, but how they feel when they're thinking about the future. <laughs> and so insecurity, um, one thing that really makes it messy is that it's, it's objective. Again, it can describe these objective material conditions, but it's also subjective. It is about, uh, it necessarily entails how you feel things are going to go. So you can kind of have what you need in here and now, but be insecure because you think something might go wrong a week, a month, a year, a decade from now. <laughs> I think that temporal dimension is really important because that's how we exist in the world as, as human beings. You know, we, 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 are, we are future looking, future oriented. And if we feel like things are going to go bad, that changes our response to things. So I think insecurity is a really, uh, you know, sort of rich term actually. And one that I try to argue throughout the book is actually really essential to the functioning of capitalism, the functioning of our economic system. So I'll just end by saying, you know, the argument I make in the book that is that just as capitalism creates inequality, because capitalism is a is a system in which capital must pursue the increase of capital, the you know, the pursuit of profit and wealth. That actually the generation, the creation of insecurity is essential to that process. Um, it's not like we just feel insecure as an unfortunate byproduct of living in an unequal age, but actually I think insecurity is really foundational um, and constitutive of the economic paradigm that we now live in. I love this argument, by the way, because it's, it's so interesting to think about how the political function of what you call manufactured insecurity as opposed to like existential insecurity. And we'll get to that, I hope too, because, uh, I love how you draw on what, what's inevitable and existential as a source of, uh, solidarity and a source of, uh, a vision for positive, uh, flourishing and interdependence. But when it comes to, like you say, the subjective aspect of insecurity, um, it's manufactured intentionally so that even, as you point out in great anecdotes, even the, the wealthy subjectively feel uh, precarious and insecure uh, and not even talking about like the insecurity of someone like Trump. Right. Um, you know, or just, you know, all kinds of insecurities are manufactured uh, in advertising, you know, making you feel like you need to fill certain voids or you're not attractive enough or whatever it is. And this function is something that uh, works in tandem with that objective inequality that is produced through the expropriation and exploitation, right? Uh, but but there's like a beautiful symmetry I find in, in, in the argument for the solution because you say instead of this manufactured insecurity, we could have a reliance on what bonds us through the existential connectedness, the insecurity that you talk about with Cura's gift and Cura's power. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, this is you know one thing when when you're digging into the concept of insecurity, so. 
you know, like my reaction was, well, hey, aren't we always going to be insecure? I mean, isn't it just a sort of innate part of being human? And so in the book, I acknowledge that by by breaking insecurity into two types, you know, ex- as you said, existential insecurity, which is the insecurity that comes from being mortal, being vulnerable, needing care throughout our lives. Um, and in fact, care etymologically, as I, sh- I show in the book, you know, it's actually the Latin root of both insecurity and security. So, and care has this rich meaning, like to care for something means both to attend to it, but also to worry, <laughs> to be anxious about something, you know, um, uh, uh, so caring is, you know, an intense thing. Um, uh, and so contrasting existential insecurity, which I think is just a feature of existence with, as you said, manufactured insecurity, which is the kind of insecurity that I don't think is inherent to human life, but is inherent to capitalism and manifests in all of these ways, you know, by advertisements, as you said, advertisements that assault our self-esteem, labor policy that denies us security on the job. You know, jobs don't need to be insecure. That's a political policy choice by foreign policy decisions that um, that are destabilizing by, you know, the uh, emission of greenhouse gases and the failure to rein in the fossil fuel sector, which is destabilizing the climate. So all these, you know, and of course, they, these types of insecurity are, are enmeshed in each other and kind of uh, obviously impact each other because we feel more existentially insecure when we're living under precarious, insecure <laughs> conditions. Um, and, you know, I think I, the, what I will say is that this book in a way, you know, is an outgrowth of my, my organizing. And I think probably anyone who knows me knows that I'm one of the co-founders of the debt collective, which is the, a union for debtors. And, you know, in the, in the debt collective, we are focused on people's financial precarity, their insecurity, the fact they're drowning in debt for medical care, for, uh, for education, for housing, And what I've learned from organizing is that, you know, financial issues are always about people's feelings, right? People feel incredibly stressed. In fact, there's lots of empirical research that shows that being poor is bad for your health, (laughs) that being in debt has massively um, devastating consequences on people's uh, mental health and also their physical health. Like there, there's lots of research and I quote some, some of it in the book that even just the fear you might lose your job, like puts you at a higher risk of death, of a heart, of heart disease, um, of, you know, real, you know, risky physical ailments. Um, and so, um, you know, I just want to trouble this idea that we can ever separate the financial or the economic from the emotional, from the subjective, from the messy, from the lived. And so this is, you know, in a way what this book is doing is trying to stir that stuff up and say, you know, we, it would be nice if the economy was this thing we could separate from our psychological lives and just talk about abstractly. But, you know, that's, uh, but, you know, day to day, that's not how it's experienced. And especially when we want to organize to change the rules of the economic game, we actually have to start talking to people about their, um, subjective reactions, their fears, their anxieties, their insecurities, um, to, you know, to build the power to, to create a more secure economic order. And we sure as hell know that the right wing is talking to people's emotional lives because what they want to do is just tap into people's fears, tap into people's insecurities, direct them downwards at more vulnerable people and not change the structures that are, are perpetuating um, people's suffering and, in fact, just make things even worse. Yeah. Uh, one one feature of your book that uh, – people may be surprised to to under to learn about is the focus on canada um 
you 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 talk a lot about Canada, you know, and 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 Canada in an American context is, you know, it's like a, a sort of counterexample. Like people point to, oh, they have universal health care up there. They had, you know, they they have a better uh, a child benefit system than the United States. Um, and, you know, it's like a sort of a little kind of annex to the American society that people point to to say, look, we could that's almost exactly the same country in many ways, you know, settler colonial society, mostly these British immigrants that started it up. Uh, uh, so can, can you tell us a few of those stories about the, how, you know, there is still this level of insecurity uh, in Canada that that may be surprising to a, to an American reader. Yeah, yeah. This is this book is my highest quotient of Canadian content. Hopefully that doesn't scare off <laughs> American readers. I still think there's a lot in here for the American audience, but um, it's because the book is part of a series. Um, I was invited to give the 2023, whatever year we're living in, the Massey Lectures, which is an annual lecture series where you um, you write a book, five chapters, five lectures, uh, give those lectures across Canada. So that's what I was doing last month. So I went to five Canadian cities. Um, and then it's also broadcast on the Canadian broadcasting, uh, the CBC, the Canadian broadcasting channel. And so, you know, what was interesting to me about this challenge was, A, I wrote really fast um, because they only invited me to do it last September. So we have to have books in hand by, you know, we had books in July. So that is a rapid turnaround for a book. I mean, also, I knew that I was going to have this kind of captive Canadian audience of CBC listeners. So imagine the Canadian equivalent of NPR listeners. And I also knew I would have to read the book aloud. So it has a, um, uh, which was an interesting challenge because it's, you know, you don't want to weight it down too much with um, details that don't. Footnotes. Yeah, footnotes, <laughs> things that don't roll off the tongue, right? Like it's meant to basically be, yeah, a podcast like this, you know, it's conversational. Um and I, you know, as I was writing it, you know, one thing I wanted to do was kind of um, puncture some Canadian myths, but also, I mean, it's Canadians too who buy into this. There's Canadian smugness is deep, right? It's like, well, look, at least we're not the United States. And they can say that even <laughs> as their healthcare system, as I show, you know, in the second chapter is being decimated by a lack of public investment and, and redesign um, as their housing system Contrary to all their, you know, their perhaps, you know, intuitive self-regard is actually more off the rails and market driven than the United States. The housing situation in Canada is worse than the United States. In fact, just a few months ago, um, it was revealed that Canadian households are the most indebted of any G7 country. That means they have higher rates of household indebtedness than the United States, mainly because of out of control housing costs. You know, so. Um, so I think this is, this is important. And it is important, I think, for those of us working in the um, U.S. context to actually have, you know, a, a deeper understanding of how welfare states and other countries that we're looking to as examples actually work and are working so that if we ever, ever manage to build the political power to win those systems, we can design them a bit better. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the Canadian healthcare system is a, is a really good example at this point. You know, the history of it is that, um, uh, you know, it's still quite, there are still sort of 
uh, it, it's not completely a, a state system like the NHS. And of course, the NHS is having problems in the UK right now, too. So it's hard to find a place to actually point to. Um, but in Canada right now, essentially, um, you know, there's just there has not been uh, there has not been enough public investment over recent decades. The number of hospital beds per per capita, you know, for the per capita over on average has gone down significantly. Um, and what this has done is it's just created, um, a desire among a portion of the population that's, you know, a bit wealthier to be able to buy access <laughs> to, to buy healthcare. And, you know, there's plenty of, um, uh, American doctors who set up shop, you know, just south of the border, south of the Canadian border, who will, you know, perform a knee surgery or something like that. <laughs> and Canadian, you know, wealthier Canadians can just hop over and they think that's what American healthcare is like. Like, oh, that was so great. You know, I got, I got my knee surgery in like a week <laughs> without fully understanding just how terrible, um, uh, the American model actually is when it's, when you're reliant on it. So, um, but, but at the root of this, so I, so I, you know, talk about some of these policy decisions, but really the, the root issue is thinking about what security could mean, you know, what we mean when we, uh, talk about security and, um, you know, specifically the chapter that talks about the Canadian healthcare system in depth and whether security as it's provided by the state is something that is purely defensive, right? So, um, providing for, uh, you know, policing or the military or, uh, you know, is security just actually protections from an overweening state so that you have, you know, basic rights of due process and the right to, you know, not have illegal search and seizure, right? Like this idea of the state as, as basically a minimalist apparatus. <laughs> That doesn't tread on your yeah. individual rights and liberties and defends you and defends your, rights. Yeah, defends your private yeah. property. Or do we need a, ro- a more robust, positive conception of security? You know, the kind of security that FDR was talking about with his proposal for an economic bill of rights. It's like, no, to actually be secure, you need health care, you need uh, housing, you need education and the like. But then, yeah, like by looking at the Canadian healthcare system more deeply, I'm trying to say like, but, you know, it's not enough to just have public, quote unquote, public health care. It actually has to be like well-maintained. It has to be well-run. It has to be structured in a way um, that doesn't contain the seeds of its own undoing, which right now, I mean, it's the Canadian healthcare system is in such a crisis. I think it's actually kind of hard for Americans who are so used to pointing to it as a good example to understand the kind of state that it's in in some provinces. Yeah. <laughs> the The... Well, so, so my fo- my follow up question there, you know, so so we talk about Canada um, and the U.S., but if you sort of look at the welfare state literature, you know, there's sort of like three big categories of of style of system. You have the Anglo systems, like very neoliberal, you know, especially in the in the United States, reliant on a lot of uh, tax breaks. You know, the employer exclusion for tax uh, for 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 health insurance. Um, and you have the, the sort of German, like central European model. It's very corporatist. It's like, you're trying to tie, uh, health insurance to your job, but in a, like a more logical way. But then you have like the Nordic social democratic model, uh, that, that is like fully, uh, you know, state run and operated. And, you know, you can sort of see these like bouncing around because like the British have, uh, 
you know, fully state run and operated like the, the government owns the owns the, the the they do the insurance and they own the hospitals and they pay the doctors and everything. But they just like manage it terribly because basically there's been conservative government for what, like 13 years now. Uh, and and yet. But, you know, so like I was recently in, in Finland and, um, you know, you 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 look at the level of um safety net that they're providing and and like you're talking about something like 20 percentage points of gdp worth of of tax take from the national government and ridiculously uh uh generous welfare benefits for all kinds of stuff for for paid leave um you know maternity leave starts before the child is born they give you the famous baby box you can take like i think up to a year of of paid family leave national health insurance and and you know there are sort of like quasi private elements to it now and then. Like I was talking to the uh, uh, the the biggest private employer in the country, which is actually a cooperative, uh, the the S Group retailer, and they have an extra uh, health benefit for their employees. That's part of their sort of compensation, and that you know one might say is sort of like not entirely egalitarian um, in the sense that it isn't available to everybody, but I think it's fair to conclude that it is far more functional and just than the the Canadian system or the American system. And so do you think that like, uh, you know, when it when it comes to sort of America versus Canada, it's like we're, we're sort of doing a soft bigotry of low expectations yes, type of I thing. Do. Where yes. like yeah, uh, Canadians are so smug because you're looking at literally the worst healthcare system in the rich world. <laughs> we spend five percentage points of GDP more than any other country, even even the Nordics with their hyper fucking generous thing. And we have dog shit. We don't even insure everyone. You know, you you can you can be bankrupted by medical debt. Where is all the money going? You know, it's not to, the and so you know it's like the you know you got to dream a little bit bigger, darling. Type of, type of idea. Is <laughs> what, that- what, 100, I mean, I could not agree with you more. And I think that's that's definitely part of my uh, was was my message at least to the Canadians was like, yeah, you know, comparing yourself to the United States is a bad habit, but also you don't look that great. You actually don't look that good, <laughs> Canada. And so in this, that chapter about, that talks about healthcare in depth also talks about housing again, and the fact that Canadians have a, even more market-driven housing system in the United States. And I mentioned Finland, which in addition to everything you know, great that you just said, you know, has pretty robust social housing. I think it has some like 60,000 social housing units in Helsinki alone and has uh, adopted a housing first response to um, the crisis of the unhoused, which means, you know, you house somebody who's in crisis and then try to meet their other needs with social services. And so it's one of the, at least at the time I was writing, was the only European country with a declining rate of homelessness, which is also pretty impressive. So, yeah, I mean, I think in general, we should always be looking up <laughs> and and try to be trying to set a new floor um, instead of, you know, just taking a, you know, having a flattering comparison. I mean, I get it. It makes sense if you're in like a, a band, you want to have a crappy opening band so that you look good or something. But, you know, if we're talking, to, talking about setting social policy, it's not so great. Um, uh, but, you know, obviously even Nordic countries are not immune to the threat of neoliberal um, uh, gutting and, and, you know, have, uh, you know, we've seen the decline of the Nordic welfare state in some regards over recent decades. Um, and so I think 
you know, part of one, I think one possible insight from this book too is, you know, well, what is some of the rationale behind that, that, that motors the destruction of welfare states, whether they're, you know, uh, whichever model that they fit into and, you know, a recurring theme and it's just a theme that has been part of the sort of, of capitalist ideology since its genesis going back uh, centuries is that, you know, we can't, that, that other people's security is actually a threat to our collective well-being because of the nature of, because we need to incentivize people to work, <laughs> you know, with a stick and some carrots. Uh, and that actually, you know, we cannot afford to, to let people rest. And, you know, I think that's part of why, you know, people like us are always saying like, Hey, do you know that like Finland gives people more than a year off for maternity and paternity leave and society doesn't crumple? <laughs> and we have to be making that point over and over because we're so steeped in the idea that somehow, like, not only can we not afford that, we don't have the money, which is something you've thought a lot about, Ryan, you know, like we can't afford it, but also we can't afford it because like, there will be this um, because of the moral implications, right? The moral fabric of society will unravel if we let people just like enjoy their lives for a bit. And that insecurity, and this is why I say insecurity is really essential to capitalism. It's like, you need to keep goading people. You need to keep vlogging people with the specter of insecurity uh, or else, th we, you know, the wheels will fall off this economic machine and that impacts people at every level of the economic hierarchy, right? It's like, you can't rest just because you've gotten out of debt and now you have <laughs> zero net worth. Like, sorry, you have to keep trying to accumulate more. Okay. You've made it to the middle class. Well, guess what? Now you have to save up a bunch of money for your kids to go to college and for retirement. Oh, Hey, you're actually rich. Well, guess what? Your investments could, you know, um, suddenly crash. So you've got to keep going. And so I think there's, if we want to have a chance of building the kind of beautiful welfare state, I think that we, we need, you know, I think we actually need to tackle this ideology too. this idea that insecurity is actually, you know, the best, most useful, efficient form of motivation that there is, if that makes sense. Right. It, it's, it's both, um, disgusting at a normative level and, and in the picture of the human being as, as kind of, you know, the Hobbesian nasty, uh, selfish, aggressive, um, kind of person you need to defend against, um, you know, Lord of the Flies picture of the human being. And, and so that's just, that's just wrong and gross, but also it, it's exactly disproven by, you know, people love data these days. Like, you know, you, you talk about the, all the, all of the experiments with like basic income, you know, where people are just given money, um, produce not lazy people who do terrible things, but like it increases the number of hours worked. It has all these positive benefits socially. Like it's the exact opposite of what they tell us. What they tell us actually produces uh, self-harm. It's like ironic. So the thing that you think you're doing to protect yourself will redound to your own destruction, whether it's, you know, from uh, the, the insecurity of even wealthy people because the market is always, you know, precarious and um, there, there's never enough money. You never know whether it's, uh, because you're destroying the climate through these kinds of policies that, that uh, flow from that. And then the opposite actually produces a kind of security that you talk about, um, that comes from, uh, recognizing our interdependence and, and actually, uh, seeing your good and freedom and someone else's good and freedom. Right. Yeah. yeah I think, and there is just, there is, as you said, just lots of empirical evidence of this, uh, you know, especially, you know, UBI is something that has been studied enough universal basic incomes in various forms to show that, you know, even if people do work a bit less as, you know, I talk about, uh, 
one study from the 1970s in Canada, which is called Mincom, you know, well, they were working less because they were doing quote unquote productive things like not dropping out of high school <laughs> or pursuing, you know, higher education in some way. So things that we consider socially productive. Now, I mean, I'm enough of a bohemian that I'm like, why, why can't we just let people like make some soup? <laughs> right. You know, and do we really, totally. and, and also yeah. to say like, well, do we really need people to quote unquote be productive all the time in an age of climate collapse? Like, I think we need to redefine, redefine productivity and, um, and all those things. But, but it, yeah. it is this idea sure. that other people's security is a threat to our own security. Whereas I think what you just laid out is precisely right. You know, many of the mechanisms by which we are, you know, and this is a core premise of the book, many of the mechanisms by which we are told to pursue Oh, sorry, many of the mechanisms that we are told will earn us security in this world paradoxically undermine it, both individually and collectively, right? So our investments in the stock market are actually inherently volatile, as you said, but also they're typically invested things that are really destructive, you know? So you have some tech stock that's undermining democracy or lay, lay, you know, perpetuating mass layoffs, or maybe you... Um, you know, are, uh, you know, so you invest in property so that you might have a chance of a decent retirement, but actually then you're a landlord who's also, you know, invested in the, uh, um, the housing market in ways that actually, uh, make it harder for people to, to stay housed and, and make your, you know, your neighborhood or your community more expensive or inaccessible. And, you know, I, and, these so these are the systems that we need to to break out of. Um, but I also try to empathize with us in the moment, like why we're well we're in them, you know. So it's like as things stand, we're kind of trapped in these systems, and we actually just we can't will ourselves out of them individually. So this is why you know we need to pursue collective um, power building strategies if we want to to get any sort of policy change. Anyway, I'm preaching to the choir on that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this was a sure. <clears throat> leads to a question I I had reading the book. You know, like you you talk about how uh, insecurity is is kind of necessary for capitalism, and I I think I agree in so far as we're talking about a certain class of company that requires like basically endless supplies of disposable labor like Amazon warehouse workers, you know, they just burn through those people or Uber, DoorDash, you know, just, just like, or, you know, like, like, uh, uh, fruit pickers, you know, strawberry pickers and, and, you know, migrant labor and that sort of thing. Um, but you know, I, I wonder if, well, like we've seen, you know, we've seen in the Nordic countries, first of all, that I, I guess people could argue whether or not they're capitalist or not. They're certainly a lot less capitalist than the United States they have this sort of wraparound welfare state where like, especially in Finland, as you say, uh, there's basically an unlimited unemployment allowance that you can get. Um, like, like you could stay on that indefinitely. And so the model, the idea basically, rather than like beating people into jobs with the stick is to entice them. It's like all carrots for the most part. And it basically works good. Like these are rich countries. Um, and they have lots of productive businesses making profits, you know, and those, those profits are highly taxed, of course. Um, so it's not like, uh, the, the same level of just absolutely insane wealth that you can get. But, but even in the United States, um, you know, we've seen over the last year, a uh, year or two, uh, a, a really high pressure boom, a real labor shortage for the first time in more than 20 years, probably, where, 
you've seen a, 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 a scarcity of workers, especially at the bottom. It's like, what, what are the only workers that have their wage increases have, have kept up over inflation since 2021? Well, it's the bottom 10%. It's the people in the shittiest jobs, um, you know, do, do hospitality workers and all like, like the, the jobs that ordinarily you would require, you know, you basically rely on people being so desperate that they had no other option. Um, but what's happened to the broader U.S. economy over that period? It's grown explosively. The last, uh, the last, uh, GDP print for the third quarter of 2022, it was like 6%, 5 point something percent growth for, for on an annualized basis. And so, you know, it, I guess, is that still capitalism in your view or, or, or are we looking at a sort of different model of how you organize the economy where you have like a chronic labor shortage and a welfare state such that, 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 you know, these type of businesses where the entire model, whether or not you put some sort of high tech bullshit gloss on it depends on you know, just massive labor exploitation where that we just get rid of that particular type of business and have only, you know, businesses that actually use, you know, productive machinery equipment and so on. What do you think? So I guess my, so I think it's, that's a really interesting substantive question. And I think we should all talk about it because it's fascinating. I guess my feeling is, you know, it's not like there's just capitalism and socialism and that, you know, there's multiple types of capitalism and, we're still arguing over what socialism is, whether it's even existed, what it could be, how to run it, run it democratically. Um, uh, and, and so there's, there's definitely, you know, we've seen even in the United States that capitalism can take different forms. Now, never write all out social democracy here, but, you know, a period where there was more job security, at least for a decent proportion of the population and, and now one that's more, you know, neoliberal, um, or gloves off. And we are seeing, as I said, you know, Nordic countries, um, definitely maintain higher standards of living and security and, and a more carrot based approach, as you're saying. But also, you know, capitalism is global and we are seeing global forces challenge the, that model. Um, and we are seeing the, the privatization of, uh, you know, large parts of, of the Nordic welfare state. I mean, if we're looking, you know, we can look at, a, you know, and some of the, the political debates that are playing out in Sweden today, for example, you know, have some American echoes, um, but aren't totally analogous. So, you know, I guess what, what we are seeing is that even if you manage to have these islands of sort of social democracy or less cruel and insecurity plagued capitalism, Within the global context, it can, it's a struggle to maintain that, <laughs> that no country is an island. So that seems to me one factor. And, but I, I think the, the, you know, the core thing, and, and this is something I, I guess in the book, I sort of play it both ways and, but is, and something both of you have raised is like, well, you know, security is not necessarily bad for markets or productivity. Uh, you know, and that, that's, you know, that we see that people are more productive. Uh, that people can be more productive, that there's all sorts of like cost <laughs> saving benefits to having a secure population, right? If people are less stressed out and less sick, then they're going to have less healthcare costs. They're going to miss less work. They're going to be actually better workers, like making the case to capitalists that actually security is good for them too. But I think, I do think at the heart of capitalism, there is, 
I, I, I do think that, you know, if you, if somewhere at the bottom, somebody's insecurity is critical, you know, is going to be a, a core component of the system. And, and that the question is whether we could take some of the models that we're pointing out places where the welfare state is more robust and we're seeing, um, things work. And can we, could we build on those to actually transcend? And, and get into that something, something else, something different. In my next book, not to plug it, <laughs> my next book, uh, which is coming out in March is called Solidarity, the past, present and future of a world changing idea. I co-authored it with a friend. This is a book I, I worked on for much longer than this one. It's not like a sort of just short book of essays, but we have a chapter in that book, uh, that's called the solidarity state. Um, and it's kind of thinking about what sort of state policies you know, what might come after a welfare state instead of just imagining, you know, some making a, a blueprint for some socialist order far, far, far in the future. It's like, what are the ways that we could structure social policy that would be one more one more step um, beyond uh, um, some of the encouraging welfare um, systems that we we see now, but that might make them a bit more resilient to the market based attacks and privatization that we're also seeing. Um, so I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. You know, where, where is the boundary when something ceases to be capitalism and starts being more, more or less, more socialistic. But my sense is it's blurry and there's not just like a, a switch, especially when, you know, all countries again are operating in a, in a, in an internationalized economy um, and are affected by what's going on in other places. So it's kind of hard. Um, you know, it's actually yeah. hard to, Draw things out as someone sitting in Greece might know right now at the moment too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Exactly. No. And that's, I mean, the thing that I hope as socialists, we, um, our imaginations are often pressed by the idea of what it means to, to actually think through, uh, no one's free until everyone's free and, um, and how borders and the kind of, uh, the way that the GDP of your country is doing or the way that you're doing in your country relates to how people are doing in other places. And even the, the Scandinavian model, you know, there's a lot of xenophobia. There's a lot of issues like the far right, you know, it has power now in Finland, right? Like they just won an election. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the, there's a reason that, that, um, trans panic and attack on trans people occurs in places where that maybe the, the economic issues aren't as stark. Um, and, you know, for me, Astro, when you talk about this bullshit distinction that Isaiah Berlin gave us between negative and positive rights and that security really needs to have uh, an understanding of, of both, um, you know, a positive vision of flourishing, it seems to me, um, goes to something beyond just like not letting us fuck ourselves over as much as we are in other places, <laughs> you know, and instead thinking about the potential of creative and, um, solidaristic kind of possibilities that we do see pop up and, and that give glimpses of what could be a more durable kind of be way of being. Uh, and I'm excited about your next book to see uh, a vision of, of that. Right. Um, but I don't know. So maybe if you want to talk about that a little bit, cause you had a, a very, I mean, every time I read about your, your childhood, I, I loved learning about your, 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 and Rand's grandma didn't see that coming. That was cool. Um, but like so, so many interesting uh, ways of being and so many different um, uh, possibilities for how people can become formed and, and, and grow that I think we need to kind of expand our imagination uh, beyond what we currently see. And yeah. Play. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just keep on the imagination front. Like I just keep thinking about 
uh, Ryan's mention of the baby box in Finland, right? Like the idea that you get stuff like a maternity leave it begins before you even have the kids. So that this is like concern for the unborn, you know, it extends your, your parents actually get to be home uh, with you when you're an infant for, for a period of time. But that baby box, you know, free, you know, quote unquote, free stuff, public, public support versus, you know, going to any um, pharmacy now, you know, uh, and, and seeing just like, these necessities like infant formula behind lock and key. I mean, they're locking up toothpaste now at, at these places. Um, and, um, you know, just like this idea that, uh, you know, I, and so I do think it's really important to point to those models and just be like, look, you can support people this much. And again, the, the wheels don't fall off society. This is, you know, these Nordic countries are actually wealthy. Yes, they have, they do have problems. I think it's really important to talk about, uh, the fact that there's a kind of welfare social, sorry, welfare chauvinism or xenophobia rising. But I think also to, to, to contextualize that economically and say it's actually because people fear the, you know, it, and to some degree, it is actually because people fear losing what they have. There's still an, again, insecurity is forward looking. So even if you're sitting in Finland with your baby box, <laughs> you know, and your job, you know, if you have any political awareness, you know that that can, this, this can be taken away from you and that there are forces eager to privatize the welfare state, or maybe you have the vague sense there's just not enough to go around because you've been listening to right wing commentators or whatever. Um, and that these, these anxieties, you know, uh, you know, are, are fueling the, the right wing turn. Um, yeah, in terms of my own, you know, political imagination um, and how it was formed, uh, there is a chapter where um, I talk. Well, I talk about my two grandmothers in the book in different chapters because one is the quintessential Canadian hippie, if there's such a thing, who um, in the 1960s goes and, and moves to the Yukon Territory, which for listeners who don't know, it's a, it's like basically near Alaska. It goes you know to the it's next to the Arctic. Um, and my other American libertarian, libertarian grandma who lived, uh, south by the Mexican border. And in the book, I actually toned my grandma down because I just thought the truth of her is too much. Um, and so I tried to use her in a way that both made some political points, but also would get some laughs. But the truth is when I was giving the lecture, I, I gave that specific lecture that mentions my libertarian grandmother in Vancouver. And, you know, I, I know I thought the stories I told were really funny, but uh, the Canadians in the audience just like looked so mortified. <laughs> You're just like, like, what the fuck? That lady's your grandma. Um, <laughs> because I tell, you know, I told, tell the story about how I was like a seven or eight year old vegetarian. I'm so vegetarian. And I would go to grandma's house and she would like purposefully put bacon grease in her cookies just to torture me. Um, <laughs> that was like just the tip of the iceberg with her. So she was a diehard Randy, and I will say that she was introduced to Ayn Rand in Canada. So Canada is not guilt free on this point. Um, but she, um, you know, so for example, one thing I don't say in the book is that my, my sister, my younger sister, Sonora Taylor, who's a, a really interesting writer and thinker in her own right, um, who does a lot of work around disability justice and, and the environment, um, is a wheelchair user. <laughs> you know, and we were, and when we were kids, my grandmother would say, well, you know, there's no such things as rights. Sonora doesn't have rights. She's just dependent on the charity of the family. Like she's just lucky that our society is charitable and doesn't leave her to die in the woods. <laughs> this is grandma's 
libertarian political vision. Right. And, um, and, and, uh, so it was incredibly formative and she could just tell like from the time I was six years old that like something was off with me and I had socialistic tendencies. Um, and so we were always, uh, butting heads, but her, her political, um, extremism and her fundamentally her lack of care, what I felt was a lack of care, um, uh, and naivete about, um, capitalism really did shape my perspective, you know, from, from a, a young age. Um, and, um, you know, she was someone who, uh, you know, absolutely could not envision a role, a positive role for this, a positive role for the state. Um, and, uh, and that was just something, yeah. So that was just something that, you know, I was wrestling with a lot, even as like a really young person before I sort of fully understand, sorry, before I fully understood her, her worldview or the implications of it. Um, you know, it just seemed very clear to me that we needed some kind of entity that would regulate things like pollution, that would guarantee, <laughs> uh, the provision of things like education or safe transport or, um, you know, uh, healthcare for people. Um, but, uh, but she had, um, she just had, you know, an, a, a very, very different worldview, but my hope, you know, is also that that part makes people laugh a little bit at least. Cause otherwise it's, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of otherwise very serious commentary in the book. <laughs> and if you it, can't make fun of your family, what else can you do? You know, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it strikes me you you said you said southern border right southern border yeah. of the United States yeah Mexico so yeah Mexico yeah. Uh, Arizona mm-hmm. yeah and I I think that that gets into you know the the libertarianism is a kind of a disease of privilege I would say um, you know where you're like li- literally sitting on land that was stolen from Mexico by the federal government you know and then you're like oh the the government's not doing anything for me we need to like cut back all this stuff you know it's like just it should the government should do things that benefit me and not other people you know it's it's sort of what it boils down to practically even if that's not how people sort of see it in their heads um 100 and she you know she was for example very against the border and and thought people should have free travel you know to pursue work for corporations who would be the sort of leviathans and so it was also this you know juxtaposition you know, anyway, all the incoherence, incoherent aspects of, of libertarianism, which is, okay, so there's free movement, but private property, like, right, exactly, like, you know, her land, her, her, she really, you know, her land was hers. But as you say, you know, her, her land was on stolen land. Um, and there, of course, had to be a state to protect her property interests, you know, but not one to provide, you know, something like, you know, schooling. Yeah. Um, and that's and what it, it is to have property means that the state yes. protects those property rights. It's not, yes. your, it's a relationship between people, not objects. You know, yeah. it's not my land. It's because I have deeds and I can call the police or sue if somebody mm-hmm. trespasses. That's what property is. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But it's also fiction. It's a fictional, it's a fictional bullshit boundary that, as you pointed out so many times in your writing, uh, Astrid, like, 
we are actually bound up together. We're not actually separated in those ways. And if you fucking put toxic chemicals in the soil, I don't care if that's your soil, that's going to permeate through the ground and reach other people. If you're going to pollute the air above your head, that's going to fuck up other people too, because we're actually connected in ways that these fictions, um, you know, obscure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 100%. I mean, she's, you know, I mean, libertarianism is, Interesting, and I don't talk about this so much in that chapter because the the story of that grandmother is told in, in the chapter that talks about ecological insecurity and the fact that, um, you know, so my family lived in Arizona when I was a small child and we lived on a, a what became one of the first Superfund sites. So one of the most toxic sites um, in the country at that point where we were essentially living atop a plume of water, uh, an aquifer that had been polluted by military industrial toxic waste going back to the Korean War. And so knowing this as a child and then my grandmother being like, well, my land is my land and I can, you know, and if somebody owns something, then of course they can pollute it. They can do what they want. And I was like, well, you know, what the hell is a property line lady? <laughs> like, you know, right. You know, it's like not, you know, the, the earth doesn't care that this belongs to you and that belongs to someone else. Right. Like this is ecology is not going to be contained by your, your fantasy of, of ownership. Um, but, you know, I think also it, libertarianism also gets us to this question of like, well, what what kind of security are we talking about? Because they do have a vision of the state and it is a state that is precisely that negative uh, that that fulfills just those negative um, duties, you know, that uh, provides the institutions of violence that that back up your uh, property rights. Um, and, you know, maybe some and civil liberties, civil liberties are good, but like doesn't actually provide uh, the positive things that people need to have flourishing lives. Um, and uh, it just, yeah, even as a, even as a little kid, I just thought it was delusional. And, you know, as a democratic socialist, I admit there's lots of things we need to figure out. <laughs> there's lots of interesting questions and incoherencies and, and, that's okay. and, and, and fun challenges, but I think we're starting from a, a more solid Starting point. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of when, because you mentioned care and that your grandma didn't care. Yeah. And, and so much of the, I think, positive vision is about the type of care we need to imagine. Um, it, it, it struck me earlier too when you were talking about, um, when you care about something, you're also worried about it or concerned about it. And that reminded me of Martin Hoglund's book, This yeah. Life. And the, con the connection between what you're saying in terms of existential um, insecurity and his idea of kind of like the finite life in, that we have temporally, we only have so much time. And that's why it matters so much, uh, what we care about, what we commit to and, and capitalism obstructs. And this is also, I think, Ryan, an answer to, to like the limits of social democracy or the limits of capitalism that is a little less mean. Um, that's cool if you are forced through the, like the current market or the place that you're in to, um, you know, have a house and have healthcare and have an education, but you like are forced into a maybe well-paying job that you don't like, but it provides the needs for the family. And you do that one thing that you don't really like, but like, at least you're not starving and your family has food on the table. That's not the same positive vision of fulfillment as I think, Astra, you might uh, agree with Hogland is a much more creative, interesting world where we can figure out how to use our capacities to uh, flourish together in ways that aren't so constrained by like market forces, mm -hmm. even if regulated well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I do, I do think there's a resonance between 
the argument I'm making. And, you know, my argument's not a, it's not that original. I mean, it sort of echoes existentialists over the decades, right? Like if you don't have a, um, metaphysical or theological framework and what you have is what's here on earth and the here and now, like then, um, yeah, then we should take care of it. We should take care of each other. We should make this limited, fragile existence as, um, as enjoyable as possible as we can together. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these are, you know, when I said that there's all sorts of questions, you know, that socialists need to ponder too. I mean, to your point about like, you know, the, uh, the person who is being coerced by market forces into a job they don't like, I mean, there's still going to be lots of shit work under socialism. <laughs> and I, I think there would be yeah, some, but some isn't it different though, it, yeah. if, if if we collectively and democratically yes. talk about okay who's yeah. going to do this what what shit work and like that's a kind of different yeah, kind of thing yeah. than like yeah right and then maybe we don't right it's not maybe we yeah. then appreciate the people doing it more because we would have democratically deliberated yeah. over it and like wow you know here's a whole class of jobs that are actually really essential and they are not fun so perhaps there should be some honor that goes with that work, right. Or some respect in addition to some kind of remuneration and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think there could, there, yeah, there will always be things that we don't want to do. And I think there will always be some elements of coercion in a, in a society. I think the question is, well, when is coercion legitimate and how do we actually talk about coercion in a democratic way instead of just sort of um, relying on the market to do, do that for us. Um, Yeah. And then, I think this question of values would come in too, right? If you're, if you're not using purely economic incentives, then we'd also have to just revalue work. And I think some of the work that is the most disparaged at this moment would become some of the most hopefully venerated um, or appreciated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I I think this, this maybe is a way to sort of resolve your question, the, 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 the question of, um, you know, capitalist necessity, it's like, do, does, does capitalism require, you know, this, this precarious, uh, insecure workforce to sort of perpetuate itself? And I think the answer is if we define capitalism as rule by capitalists, uh, it's definitely true because that's what, you know, the, 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 like the political command of capitalists depends on, you know, this, the, the reserve army of labor. Like the, 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 the population of people will take any job so long as it will keep them from starving. But I think that it is not the case that, 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 that there's no alternative in terms of being wealthy and having like a productive economy and being prosperous and all this sort of, sort of stuff that, that if you get rid of some of these capitalist, you know, as I've defined it elements, like, you know, with, with the, comprehensive labor market regulations, labor market, such that it's not actually a market anymore to where, you know, it's like everybody's subject to a union contract. That's not market forces. That is collective bargaining. That, that is a uh, restraint of trade. You know, this is, this is how the, you know, conservatives would sue the, in the Supreme court to, to get unions banned because it was, it was, it was antitrust, you know, type stuff. Um, 
I mean, and yet still you can have an incredibly wealthy society with all of, all of these institutions and all it requires is, you know, basically dethroning the capitalist from, you know, the top of society and saying, no, like, no, we're a democratic collective. And the fact of the matter is that garbage, uh, garbage sanitation employees deserve to be paid $600,000 because that job sucks. And you need to you need to actually entice people into doing it, not just <laughs> yeah. rely on desperation. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, I think that's true. I mean, a wealthy society, you know, with wealth again revalued and redefined. You know, what is wealth? Or a, a very productive society uh, where we count different kinds of work as productive. And you know, these these are insights, of course, echoing you know our feminist economist allies and friends who are like, yeah, there's all sorts of important labor that's not being valued under the current order that we could bring out of the shadows and count in different ways. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, but I, I think that our attachment to insecurity as a form of, of human motivation in American society today runs pretty deep. Um, oh, yeah. and that, that, um, Retraining ourselves is actually a really big, important project. And so, the, you know, a theme of, of these, the essays that make up this book really is, you know, motivation and what other forms of motivation could we tap into? Um, and, uh, and, and I think our care for other people is one of them. Uh, I, you know, I write about how curiosity is a major motivation. Um, you know, I think, you know, our desire ultimately to survive and have a decent life is a, a decent form of motivation. I don't know if we need to layer more manufactured insecurity on top of it, but you know, this, the question of motivation is, you know, really at the heart of any debate over how we're going to run an economy or run a society. Um, you know, I don't talk about it, but I think this question of like the provisioning of honor and respect is a really important thing too. Um, you know, um, and uh, could become more important as monetary incentives fade away. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that reminds me of the difference between uh, even materially people who receive money through unemployment and might feel sh ashamed right. because of the kind of connotations of that versus somebody who's receiving a uni universal income right. uh, totally. who doesn't have that, that attached and that changes the behavior, exactly. the psychology. Right. right. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the speaking of it in terms of honor is the positive flip side of shame, which is so powerful. I mean, shame is something we, of course, talk about a lot at the debt collective, the shame of indebtedness, the shame of poverty, precisely as you're saying, the stigma associated with certain welfare benefits in the society, but not others. So there's no shame in the mortgage interest deduction, right? There's no shame when you're, you know, right. Right. Child tax credit, right yeah. Exactly. The child tax credit. So why do certain yeah. things have stigma? And it's just to remind us that Shame and stigma are social constructs and we can change those. Right. But I, I do think to, um, uh, it's a big barrier to getting people to fight for more robust forms of social security. And by that, I don't just mean literal social security, but social security broadly getting people to fight for more support from the state is the fact that there's a lot of stigma associated with that. I have a, uh... I have just one more question. In, in your book, you talk about something. I, I believe uh, Chris Hayes mentioned it in his book, like more than 10 years ago, fractal inequality. And, and, and basically, uh, you know, the, the fractal inequality refers to the fact that, you know, you have a sort of like exponential dis distribution of wealth, you know, where like the, the very most richest person in the entire world is like twice as rich. 
as the second most rich person, you know, and so sort of, so you have this like incredibly steep cliff of wealth going up. And so unless you're literally that person at the very top, you always have this huge, you know, level of, of, uh, wretched gushing excess going up above you. And I think that that, you know, as you, as you say, that, that is, uh, kind of socially toxic in its own way. It reminded me there's a, there's a, a post from, from Josh Marshall called the, the brittle grip, um, that I wanted to, to, to read a little excerpt from, um, he said, this is from 2014, he says, there's a slice of the population, whether it's the top 1% or top uh, 0.1% or whatever, that doesn't just have more stuff and money. The sheer scale of the difference means that they live what is simply a qualitatively different kind of existence. That gulf creates estrangement and alienation and one of a particular sort in a democracy where such a minuscule sliver of the population can't help to protect itself at the ballot box. Let's call this socioeconomic acrophobia. And, and I think that, you know, that, that sort of captures what you're talking about in the book that, um, you know, that level of extreme wealth, I would say is bad for, for, for the billionaires themselves. You know, it's like it's in their interests in terms of like economic rationality, but they, they cut themselves off from the rest of humanity and they live in fear of being expropriated by the 99.99999% of people who could potentially vote to take their money away. And it makes them nuts. You look at Elon Musk, he's out of his gourd, you know, and I think the money, maybe it's not only the money, but the money has a lot to do with that. It's, 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 it's toxic for society and it's toxic for the individuals who, who, who end up with these fortunes. Yes, I so I fully endorse what you've just said and, and the quote. I mean, I think that that's one of the the arguments in this in this book is that the system actually isn't working even for the people that it's supposedly working for. And that too is shaped by my organizing. I mean, again, I organize with debtors who by definition, the kind of debtors I organize with have negative net wealth, right? Um but transforming, remaking our economic system is not just in the interests of the most impoverished and immiserated. I think it's actually in the interest of, of the vast majority of us. And it would be in the interest of billionaires, I think, to be forced to be more normal because it's not just that they fear expropriation. I mean, if you, if you have a billion dollars, nobody treats you like a regular human being. Nope. Like the world sees you as an yeah, ATM. You're, you're no real friends. Right. I mean, it's just like, it's an incredibly toxic way of, of being. And that's why, you know, saying, um, we want to abolish billionaires is like absolutely not like saying, you know, uh, being hateful, I don't know, towards trans people or something, right? Because it's not, you're not, it's not, um, it's not about them in some essential way. A billionaire is a, to be a billionaire is to occupy a certain position in the economy, <laughs> to have less wealth, you know, isn't the same as like someone trying to annihilate you. It's just saying like, no, you shouldn't be that rich and you shouldn't have the power that flows from that wealth. But also, you know, you should be a normal person. It will actually be good for your, it will be good for society and, and good for your, your soul. Um, you know, fractal inequality, I tell an anecdote that's maybe worth recounting of meeting a, a woman, um, who had recently inherited quite a bit of wealth from her parents who had passed away. And so she joined a progressive group of other inheritors, other wealthy people, uh, who were seeking to use their money to do good. 
And what she told me was that the main effect of joining this group was not to be inspired to give her wealth away, which is what she'd been hoping for, but rather that it made her feel poor because suddenly the millions of dollars she inherited paled in comparison to the tens of millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars that the people she met possessed. And that is, that's what it feels like to be caught up inside this fractal inequality that, you know, nobody really feels they have enough. And the fact is, because again, of the volatile, volatile nature of, of the economy, you know, sure, you're theoretically, your wealth could evaporate, <laughs> you know, I mean, or it could go down, um, uh, you know, and, and so people, um, uh, even when they really don't necessarily want to, you know, sort of end up having to tend to and guard their possessions. Um, and, you know, there's just people, People uh, end up behaving in a way to sort of protect their assets that, you know, in the case of this person, were actually sort of contrary to the person that she wanted to be <laughs> and that she was aspiring to be. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of name that, those structural, uh, those structural factors there. Um, you know, and of course, there's an entire industry, Chuck Collins has called it the wealth defense industry, you know, a whole huge industry of financial consultants and advisors who are there, you know, um, to, to protect and build the wealth of affluent families, um, and, uh, and to sort of play up the threats that, that wealthy people are, are facing and to encourage them, you know, to be less generous. But I, I think that, you know, fractal inequality is a great phrase. I do think I originally heard it from our friend, Chris Hayes, who, um, you know, that was a great book that he wrote way back when Twilight of the Elites, which I think is maybe where uh, I first encountered it. Um, but I think it's important in terms of, you know, political strategy and, and building the mass movement that it will take to, to start addressing some of the problems that ail us. You know, I think actually we need, we need to mobilize middle-class people and affluent people to recognize the harm that is being done by this economy, not just to other people and to the, the least off, but to them too. <laughs> and for them to maybe begin to imagine how more robust forms of public security would actually benefit them uh, more than a model of just uh, private provisioning and private wealth hoarding. Um, and I think there are actually quite a few people who see it um, and who see that that something's deeply broken. And so uh, in this book, I'm trying to like, I think that's part of what attracted me to the idea of insecurity is it's a frame that might create space for some cross-class solidarity, actually, or for the solidarity uh, solidarity between people who maybe don't have identical financial situations, um, you know, uh, so not just the debtor who dreams of having zero dollars one day, but the person who actually has managed to get a down payment for a house and is now you know trapped by a mortgage, <laughs> but you know still has a you know is far from feeling that they're uh, financially secure. Um, and, you know, I'm just my my position is that if we're going to change things, we need to actually build a big tent and and put the mass in mass movements. And so, you know, this is me experimenting with a framework that I think might hold more people. Absolutely. Um, I have a last question that's optional. And that's because um, that's that's a, that's a really great place to end it. And this is like a heavy thing mm, that we've all yeah. been suffering through uh, and observing lately. Just hard these days for me not to be thinking of Gaza yes. all the time. And the, the, of course, in keeping with your diagnosis of this, uh, 
terrible understanding of what security and insecurity are. Um, self-defense has been proclaimed time and time again as what's going on with the, the carpet bombing and all the things that's that's being done to the Palestinians in, in Gaza. Um, and then on the other side, you have people who are grieving, even though they don't necessarily even know anyone who's suffering over there and, and are marching in the streets in solidarity with people they don't know. Uh, you know, we might remember the, you know, fight for someone you don't yeah. know kind of call. Um, right. Um, so I just, I just, if you want to, yeah. to talk at all about what's going on there in relation to these ideas, um, yeah. feel free. Yeah. If not, I get it. No, I mean, I, I mean, like, I think anyone who has, um, I don't know, a pulse these days, you know, I'm, I'm tuning in, uh, to the news and following what's happening with just an incredible, uh, an incredibly heavy heart. And, you know, a lot of, I think we're in a period right now with a lot of uncertainty, like what the political implications of this beyond just the incredible human toll, the suffering, the death, the destruction, but just, you know, that this is, it feels like a very um, pivotal a moment, you know, with echoes of 9-11, as, as, as people have said, but it also, um, but it, it, I, I think the analogy only goes so far. Um, you know, I actually mentioned 9-11 at the beginning of the age of insecurity because it was such a formative political moment for me. And I was 21 when 9-11 happened. I was actually in lower Manhattan that morning. And I immediately or rather quickly got a job working as a field producer on a film called Persons of Interest, where I became the person actually responsible for finding subjects for this film that was about the illegal detention of thousands of Arab and Muslim people um, uh, in the early days of the war on terror. And, um, you know, and so that period, um, you know, made me think a lot about the word security in a, in a critical way, you know, and think, well, what do we mean when we say security, security of what, <laughs> for whom, you know, and at what cost, you know, and I think those, um, you know, and, and so security can be a, a, a pretty dangerous uh, thing to pursue. And I think we are seeing that right now um, as uh, the state of Israel you know, under the pretext of needing to increase security wages, an incredibly lopsided war on, uh, on Gaza. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the things I guess that I would hold up in this moment are actually the voices of the families of the hostages taken by Hamas. Um, there was one, um, young man whose brother had been killed. And he said, you know, they keep telling us, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically it, that, you know, more dead Palestinians will make us secure. And I don't believe that, 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 you know, that, that, uh, that more dead bodies is not the, the key to my security. We're also seeing the families of hostages rallying around the phrase everyone for everyone, <laughs> which is basically, you know, trade Palestinian political prisoners for the hostages that were taken. And I think in that phrase, everyone for everyone, you actually see a wonderful distillation of a kind of politics of insecurity, which is basically like, no, we're not going to get out of this through military force and through this, um, uh, and become secure, you know, through violence, but actually by just saying, okay, you know what people want, people want their families back <laughs> and let's start there. 
uh, if we, we keep saying, you know, the state of Israel, Netanyahu is saying that, oh, this is about freeing the hostages. Okay, well, let's actually make a good faith effort to do that. Um, and, you know, certainly that wouldn't solve the problems of the region, but that would be a really radically different place to start than the approach that's being um, taken. So I just think, um, you know, there's a lesson to be learned from them and, and, and from that, uh, that phrase. But, you know, certainly we're seeing just how ingrained this idea that, that, uh, you know, <clears throat> security, um, through military force and through violence and not through care and <laughs> through the recognition of, of mutual vulnerability, you know, is still really dominant. And, uh, you know, we're seeing how I think, you know, but we're also seeing an incredible movement in the streets of, uh, solidarity across, um, uh, you know, religious and cultural boundaries. We're seeing a big showing of support. I mean, yesterday was the big, uh, massive marches in DC and London and around uh, Berlin, around the world, um, uh, for Palestinian freedom. So, you know, I just think, yeah, it's, it's an incredibly troubling time, but a time that also should, you know, encourage some thinking about, especially the word security <laughs> and how we best get it and whose interests are being served by the insecure, uh, conditions. Yeah. I mean, there was that viral, um, audio clip from some Raytheon executives, you know, essentially talking about how good, um, the war is for, for their long-term business. Uh, and so, you know, that's a kind of, you know, manufactured insecurity, um, yeah, that we need to bear in mind too. Uh, this isn't just, you know, ancient cultural conflicts and hatreds playing out once again, you know, this is, there's, there's also a lot of, you know, there's also a political economy, um, at play and there's some people whose, uh, profits and also whose, you know, political fortunes depend on maintaining this conflict and not, not resolving it. Um, uh, but, you know, I think, and the last thing I'll say is just, you know, a theme of the book is the fact that, you know, insecurity can cut both ways. Insecurity can be a conduit to empathy and solidarity, as you're seeing, I think, in the, with the families of these, of the hostages now. But it can also be something that's easily exploited and, uh, you know, and channeled into a, an authoritarian direction. And you're seeing, and you're definitely seeing that, uh, too, in this example. So, you know, the book doesn't talk very much about foreign policy, but certainly these themes are on, um, display in a big way right now. And, you know, as always, it's the protests that are giving me glimmers of hope in the darkness. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Well said.